You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Thesis on Joan. I'm Holly. They, them. I'm Megan. She, her. Thesis on Joan is a podcast dedicated to amplifying voices from the LGBTQ plus community in the New York performing arts scene and examining the industry from a queer perspective. Join fan queers and theater professionals, me and Holly, as we sit down with groundbreaking theater folk, from Brooklyn cabaret performers to people backstage and on Broadway. For many queers, theater has been an escape. This podcast looks to have open conversations on where we've come from and where we're headed as a community while queering the canon along the way. Please note this episode includes mentions of sexual trauma. Please refer to the timestamps in the show notes if you would like to skip past this part of the interview. All right. Hey, guys. Uh, Welcome to Thesis on Joan. I'm Megan. She, her. And I'm Holly, they, them. And today we are sitting down with Becca Blackwell. Becca Blackwell is an NYC-based trans actor, performer, and writer. Existing between genders and preferring the pronoun they, Blackwell works collaboratively with playwrights and directors to expand our sense of personhood and the body through performance. Some of their collaborations have been with Young Jean Lee, Half Straddle, Jennifer Miller's Circus Amok, Richard Maxwell, Aaron Markey, Sharon Hayes, Theater of the Two-Headed Calf, and Lisa Damore. Film and TV credits include High Maintenance, Rami, Marriage Story, Shameless, Dead Man's Barstool, and Jack in the Box. They have toured their solo shows, They Themselves and Schmerm, and Schmermy's Choice, across the U.S. <laughs> Blackwell was a recipient of the Doris Duke Impact Artist Award, the Franklin Furness Award, and the Creative Capital Award. Welcome to the podcast, Becca. Hi. How are you guys? Good to see you both. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Do you mind starting with your name again, your pronouns again, uh, and anything else you want to share about how you identify? Um, sure. Um, my name is Becca Blackwell. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I don't know really much more else uh, how I identify. It's, it's, for me, it's just been very funny to even have that possibility and language to even talk about. Like, um, it took me a long time to even figure out, not to figure out if I was trans, but I think figure out if I had the permission as like this 90s dyke to like transition because I felt like I'd be a bad feminist. So it's been a very interesting thing. So now it's just like when, like a little puppy, that's my pronoun. <laughs> like I, it just is so, I mean, it's exciting. And I know coming up, if I would have, 
been a different person and, and been around that, like it would have been really exciting what the next kind of obstacle was. Like, so for people, you know, just to think about those who would have been at least my parents' age who were queer, like just for them to even be able to like love the person you loved and actually even engage with them physically, it, you know, like some of like to even have touch in the way that you probably desired. So it's just interesting to think how far we've come to like, I always think that because I'm just right in that middle, like, like Gen X millennial in this place of like what I experienced. Cause I was, I wasn't in, I wasn't sexually active by choice, but a sexually active um, as a young adult during when the AIDS epidemic was really happening. So, but I became like sexual, like, like a teen, young teen during that. So I remember thinking you could get AIDS sitting on the toilet, you know, like that's the weird stuff we were told as like young teens. So it's interesting. I know that was like a really, <laughs> you're like, what else do I do? With? Oh, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> but, we can talk know. about that. And it goes into what we were going to ask next. Okay, great. Talk about labels a little bit. We, mm -hmm. um, so one of the great joys of early quarantine for us was watching uh, Shmermy's Choice, <laughs> thanks to the public theater. Yeah. Um, and we loved in that uh, you described yourself as a dyke with fag edges. And you also had the term can do dandy, which we bring up often because it's just excellent um can you talk a little bit more about labels and your relationship to them as an artist and, and as a person as well sure i mean they're so interesting because they're fluid right i mean everything i mean even like if we were to look at like the smallest thing like an atom what we when even physicists or anything like snapshot it they snapshot the atom they capture the atom but they don't really know what it is right they capture an image of it and i kind of feel like that's what labels do is they capture a moment of when you are trying to you're using a you're using a word to encapsulate kind of an experience you're having um you know i, I mm, huh like, I didn't know I was anything until I was told by others that I was something because I wasn't like everyone else. I'm sure everyone mm -hmm. can identify this either culturally, racially, gender, whatever. So, like, mm -hmm. even, like, as a young child, I didn't think about, like, I, I always said I wish I was a boy. Not because I didn't like being a girl, but because when I found out being a girl made it so that I couldn't do certain things that I was like, well, I don't want to be this. You know, mm -hmm. it's just like, I always, my game is like, imagine telling things to an alien. So you would say, we really define people by the flesh between their legs. And the alien would be like, why? And you'd be like, I don't know. I think it started with power dynamics. We could go back to the matriarchy, <laughs> but none of this is really sure. You know, like we, we judge people on the melatonin chemical in their skin. Why? Uh, I don't know. I think it started about far 500 years when it was easy to differentiate between people when we could use them as slaves. I don't know. Like, so it's like there's, so I'm always thinking like when you call someone, we find languages, we find words so that we can, we can contain it. We can identify it. And even that is, it make it's like you understand the necessity for it, but then you also understand the limitation of it. Um, and I think this is really happening for me 
it's always been happening for me as an artist, but I didn't really understand the language or how to use it. And I started studying uh, Taoism and Qigong about six years ago, and it really opened up for me a lot of like, oh, I see. I, I'm responding to what everyone else thinks about me instead of just me responding to how I think about me or how do I connect to me. And then I started, it, it shifted. I mean, it's still difficult. I don't walk around in some like utopian state, like I'm fine. It's just too bad. Everyone else isn't, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not that, but I just started to, it, it really started to then. And I, and I think I try to play with that with my show because it's kind of what I strangely grapple with. It's like, I, I didn't even know I was a dyke until someone screamed it at me, you know, you fucking dyke, you know, and you're like, what? <laughs> you know, and then you're like, that sounds bad. And then, you know, you, you see two girls making out. And you're like, I wish I could do that. And you're like, oh, you can. I'm a dyke. <laughs> that guy yelled that at me. <laughs> Grab some woman. That's like, who I am now. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. I feel like you always learn the words that people call you. Like it's well, yeah. like the first things you identify. <laughs> right. And then you either kind of, you lean into it cause you're like, mm, they're right. Or like, you're like, actually, no, I'm not that way. Like there's that part in, um, uh, but I'm a cheerleader that I love that character that was like really kind of butch at mm-hmm. the thing. And, and she was like, but I love Dick. <laughs> like, she's like, but I just like, I'm straight. <laughs> like, my, my style is dyke, you know, like, it's not just like, I, yeah. And I think we, I mean, I think the g- generation under me, the like younger generation is playing inside of that, of like, you know, if, if you're assigned, like, you know, assigned male at birth, AMAB, and you're presenting really feminine, but you still have your beard. And so, and you're playing with all of those things. Um, I think there's a lot more, I mean, that was happening way before. It's not like they were doing it at all, the first of anything, but they were doing it with a lot more protection in a weird way. Uh, I mean, still, it's still like, it's not like walking, um, you know, someone who is a side male at birth walking in a dress isn't still going to like get some kind of reaction by a lot of people. I mean, there's still just like certain people that really stay in a state of really like limited thinking. Um, but for the most part, it's easier to do that in like larger cities, probably like New York city. Um, and in certain neighborhoods, like you don't, do that in East New York, or you don't do that in Canarsie, or you don't do that in Bay Ridge, but you would do that in Bushwick, or you'd do that in the northern part of Bedside, or you know. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I have really, I like to play with language, and I even like to play with identity. And testosterone really did change how I function in the world and how I'm perceived in the world. So my whole history of being like. You know, I identify as a bull dyke and I identify proudly as a bull dyke because bull dykes weren't like lesbians. You know, we were really invisible to men. It was just a very, you know, I was very also protective of my other like butch bull dyke friends, which I don't think was totally common. But I think that was kind of like the gay in me. <laughs> are my man friends okay um, it's the caretaker probably. but uh, and so it, it was just really interesting t- 
to have the like to flip and and to like walk down the street and all of a sudden I'm like I'm a dude. Um and so then every you know and then also having a desire to be with men which then I'm like am I just a gay person no matter what like dominant gender I am or I mean I but I still like definitely am attracted and love women and my the dreaded bisexual um you know like <laughs> <laughs> Those don't really exist. So. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, We've always I, told that, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. And I always just say, "Yes, I have sex with men because I'm horny." Um, <laughs> and that's what straight men say too. Yeah, I have sex with men sometimes because I'm horny. <laughs> <laughs> I, but it is really—it's a fascinating. You know, labels are. Uh, like I understand the need for them, but I also understand that we move in them. Like, we move around in them. Like, there are some days I feel like George, and there's some days I feel like Martha. And I get that very much. And I think I think most people feel that way, too. But I don't think – I think if you're not in the queer community, you don't – you don't get kind of, like, introduced to all that kind of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm, sure. Here are the, all the different colors and – and here are the all different bandanas you can be wearing. Here's the stuff you can be into. That, you know, I think in the, the straight community, it's there, but you have to really look for that kink uh, community. And it's just a little harder, I think, with the queer community. It's just like you walk in, you're like, oh, I wonder if I can meet some. Oh, my God, you're picking on him. You know, like, like, <laughs> just keep walking. And then there's like, you know, dating behind that. I think there's just but I so I think the queer community gets uh, they kind of get it all in one because usually if we come from smaller towns or smaller uh, communities, like everything gets packed into LGBTQIA, right? Like it's all the entire, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like you're going into the one section of the bookstore and you're like, and you all have to go to the same party, you know, <laughs> like, it's like some sweet lesbian and then this like trans person. And then this other like young kid who's into fisting kink and you guys all have to like, you all get along, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you also have to go to the same party because there's like only one in the community, like you know. Like, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating, but yeah, I mean, I I feel like labels are kind of like like you know, for me, it's like when you're young and you're trying to put things on, you're like, is this me? Is this what I feel like? Is this what I'm into? Is this how I connect to it? And it might be, it might be for a really important time in your life, and then you're like. But wow, I've really elevated to this other thing. And what does that mean? And am I, you know, and 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 I think we as a society really struggle with letting people move mm-hmm. in those, those being fluid in those, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 that takes a lot of work on the receiver more than the participant, you know. Like it's usually the person who's receiving the information that's like, whoa, I don't like this because this doesn't fit into my, you know boxes I have back here of who people are and how because I know how to respond to them how do you guys feel about that stuff oh man I I love the visual you just painted of like I, I we're gonna get into this later but we're all from Ohio I don't know if oh, you know yeah. <laughs> but like imagining of um like being at home in Ohio and what it would be like to try to find a queer community in that in the town I grew up mm-hmm. yeah you would just have to like I don't necessarily if I know if I would like those queer people <laughs> but it right. would be like the oh, only yeah. choice that you would have right and you mm-hmm. would be like grouped in with them from the outside community and that's right I don't know, that's 
tricky to think of. You're like, yeah, you're right, Bob. We should have a fisting pole here. <laughs> yeah, I feel like like since leaving Ohio, it's been just like discovering of new labels and just mm-hmm. like like inching toward them and being like, oh yeah, does this apply to me? I don't mm-hmm. know. And it's just mm-hmm. felt like it's gone from such a binary to just like a huge universe of possibilities. Yeah. And yeah. it's such a beautiful, uh, I don't know, like option and um, way of not thinking of yourself within boxes and just mm-hmm. like uh, as a whole mm-hmm. spectrum of things has been really amazing. I know it is. And the, the internet's kind of what's given us as queer people that access to like how we ever even, how, you know, half the time you learned about what estrogen or testosterone or surgeries did to you is through like YouTube channels with other trans people being like, you know, here's me on my first tee. Here's me on my third, you know, and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> you're like, here's me on my hundredth and my hair is gone. You know, you're like, oh my God. Writing it all down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd be such a different queer without the internet. Yeah. 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 I was just in a, a group meeting with um, queer and trans Korean folks, mm-hmm. and it was very intergenerational. And it was just fascinating to hear the older generations talk about, like, how they organized before the internet, yeah. before everyone had cell phones. Like, Were they all American-based? Or were they just for... Uh, it was a mix. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some were like first generation, some were immigrants. Yeah. I was just curious of what that was like before like North American split, the North and South split in Korea, like if it was what was happening over there. I always think of Koreans as like the Irish of that era. <laughs> the Irish of Asia. <laughs> because, well, yeah, because there's like the same kind of like, there's like the country itself was divided and then there's you know and i just always i I always i'm irish and i always get on really well with koreans they're just they're fun see ohio uh i'm also adopted oh, korean shit. friends we're friends now all the connections yeah <laughs> <laughs> whoa but yeah. I, yeah that would be but that's awesome it's so intergenerational because that's so i feel like important just to kind of like for older people to see younger people kind of getting to thrive in a way and then also in moments of what's happening with our you know current administration like with screwing with lgbtqia rights and stuff you can have an older generation be like it's okay it's okay it's okay you know like to be like we went through a lot worse and they're not going to let it go backwards too hard you know that kind of stuff so yeah for sure Going back to your, to more about you. <laughs> uh, so your solo shows incorporate a lot of comedy. Uh, mm-hmm. What is it like to write comedy outside the binary? And how does your relationship with the audience change? Well, it's funny because I first, I never wanted to do comedy. Um, the weird person who actually pushed me for it was Cola Scola. Um, he, he's so good. He's, He's really amazing. He's a really wonderful human being. Um, but he had me um, do. Uh, he was um, co. He was hosting John Early's show at Ars Nova, Showgasm, and um, he had me, Lorelai Ramirez, on a bill, and then that's how I met Lorelai. And then Lorelai ended up seeing me in an audition and got me my current manager, which is just like, and I hadn't had any representation at all. And so I was, I wrote a solo show because 
no one knew what to do with me in acting ever. And this is 2015, and, you know, and it was still like, there was more representation of trans women because I think um, people have an obsession with anyone like feminine in this way, but masculine uh, people, even if uh, with or without hormones, they just like, unless you were really passing as a man, it, people just were like, like, uh, like no one knows how to wrap your head around someone like me who was very much like, yeah, my name is Becca and I have a vagina and I'm really masculine and I'm pretty cool with it. And everyone's just like, uh, <laughs> hmm, mm, I'm not because then you seem to negate my manness. Like, I think <laughs> I was so just like what I was. And I also just have a weird sense of humor. I had a lot of very intense stuff happened to me, but I always was about making people laugh. Even like when my family was going through some really dark stuff, like I would always try and make my older brother laugh. We were like, and I look back on it. I was like, I remember like my mom and my brother and I being like huddled in kind of like a sense of like despondency and then me doing something and the two of them laughing so hard. And then I was like, Oh, this makes everyone feel better. And like and being young when you're a kid you, and being adopted too, you're always just like, you're going to keep me, right? <laughs> like, we're cool. Mm -hmm. um, there's a weird abandonment stuff that you forever always just like, Ugh. now I'm older and I can be like, oh, that, that issue's creeping up. Be right back. <laughs> but at the time I didn't understand. So I think for me, like writing, it never, the funny thing is, is when I was trying to write a show, because I was really basically just trying to show people what they could do with me, because I don't think anyone knew how to see me as who I was. And I think who I was was larger than any role they were trying to put me in. And so I, because you, I would, if I was even have access to anything, it would be like, can you read this person that comes on and goes, hi, you know, and you know, whatever walks away. And even that they were like, whew, it's pretty, you're so intense. <laughs> Cause I just didn't like, I didn't like, I have orange hair and I have pink skin and I, nothing about me blends in. And then they're like this ambiguous gender and I still had my tits, but they were small, but I wasn't like hiding them. And so I would, I wrote my, everything I wrote, uh, and I, the, the director I had, I remember we were doing it. And my friend who came to see like a run through was just like, it's so stiff. Like Becca just tell like, tell the story. You're funny. Like how you come out and you talk to people and you can. And so then I was like, yeah, I guess I, so I realized I couldn't write it. I had to just be like, I'll tell this story. I'll tell the story of how I used to pee in the radiators. And that'll lead me into this other story about like how uh, I guess I didn't, you know, know I was a girl. So I started, I mean, and, and then what happened was, is my director and even now this Shmermy's choice the same thing happened is they would just let me start talking and we would record it and then I would have it transcribed and then that is literally how we started writing for me and that's how I realized that that's how I write stand-up so it's like here's the thing I'm trying to work through uh this is the deep point because it's always based on like at least for me, like, I'm always like, why do I, I'm writing this because I, I have like any artist you write about and you work, you perform the stuff that you don't understand. Like, I don't know the answers to this. Like, I don't understand gender. I don't understand how I participate in the world when the world, when nothing in the world, but humanity is binary, like nothing in nature is binary, nothing, nothing. Like, like e even when we're trying to like, understand it we we box it in and it's it's already moving into something else i mean that's 
that's, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of beauty of being present, right? You're not, you know, and that's what I think a lot of our anxiety is based on is future. Like we're panicked about shit that hasn't even happened. Like I, I just didn't even, I didn't even get that until like this pandemic. I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I literally spend so much time worrying about things that have never happened. What? And then I'm like, oh, that's capitalism. But, <laughs> I but I think that's half the reason why they are scared of us spending too much time outside of that system because then everyone will be like, actually, no, we're not going to go back to school. And yes, people do need caretaking if they're going to try and work full time from home. And this is something we have to actually look at a larger scale. Um, and certain systems that were put into place are just like, they're not working. They're not working when something like this happens. And, you know, and it, and it like, cause even my friends who are educators, they were saying something like, um, uh, uh, they were told so over and over and over, you can't get laptops to every kid. You can't, you can't, you can't. And then the pandemic happened. They were like, we got to get laptops to every kid. <laughs> and so, exactly. you know, yeah. things, but just going back, so I know I'm, I'm sidetracking, but for me, it was like always about like everything I talk about is about something that I haven't been able to wrap my head around and move on from. Cause that's, that's the humor, right? It's like, you're in a state of like, does this make sense to anyone else? Like, am I the only one? You know, for a long time, it was always like, women, right, guys? Because I was like, I guess just them having women having the right to vote, they were like, oh, now they're talking to us. You know, I don't know like, why, like, half of stand-up comics for men were just, like, them throwing their girlfriends and wives under the bus all the time. But I think it's because they didn't know how to wrap their heads around women. So for me, it was just like, binary systems right like <laughs> they don't even make sense because even if i was to be like i'm a like you know young uh butch and how to uh but i'm a cheerleader like even if i wanted to be like how i am now and look like the way i am and was just like i love dick and i'm you know it was just weird to always hear men just say like if you did this you would be liked or something and i was always like mm. but i mean i think women do it to me too like if you just did this, you'd be the perfect schmerm. Um, <laughs> I think maybe that's just what we do. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, so that, yeah, how I write literally everything is things I can't wrap my head around. And then how do I make them funny? Because to me, you listen when you're laughing, like you, cause you have to, cause that's kind of, you're trying to like keep up with the play on words and keep up with the kind of rhythm. So it's about, rolling and then it's also my environment like one joke i do lands one way in a certain group and then it totally changes another my therapist came to see my first solo show oh and, wow yeah and i remember i said yeah my i go everyone my therapist is here it was in new york and i was like so look for kind of an anxious jew who's laughing before the joke happens <laughs> <laughs> And I go, it's just like half the people here. (laughs) But I remember even her saying to me, because I told her I was writing this, and she was like, Becca, what are you going to tell them? Like, she was like worried for me because she was just like, she's like, if you told your whole life story, no one would believe you. And I was like, I know, I know, I know. I'm going to pick the things that like that people aren't going to be like, that's a lie. <laughs> I have to have my therapist be like, no, no, we've been working on this issue for 15 years. <laughs> oh my God. 
Can you explain what shmerm is? Yeah, shmerm is literally the word salad blender in your mouth when you don't know what gender I am. In slow motion, they would be like, there's <laughs> Becca shmerm. <laughs> and they're like waiting for some sort of cue from me to be like nope <laughs> you know, like, that's all I can do is just watch them be like oh, yep all of them I just experienced a reaction as a she a him and a they <laughs> that's it. so I'm all of them um, but yeah, Schmirn. Schmirn is a schmear of gender. That's awesome. <laughs> That's a great definition. Uh. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details well, you've worked with a lot of queer activists and artists and theaters. Uh, what do you think that current uh, queer theaters and artists could take from what you've learned over your time? Um, it doesn't matter what anyone, like when you're younger and you're in, in your, or even just if you're young in terms of even just kind of starting out in this business, it's not a business. Um, it, it, it's, it's an art form. And if you're making your own art, it's it's tough. And I don't think there's any like there's like people like Young Jean Lee, um, you know, Brandon Jacob Jenkins. I'm just trying to think of like playwrights stuff who are really like but even Young Jean Lee had to quit at the top of her game because after that she was just like, Where do I go from here? You know, and there was no money in it. Like she was able to keep a company going and get gigs and make like a lot of like, you know, like political identity politic theater but at the same time <clears throat> she got up to broadway and was just like mm. you know and that was huge to i mean as a as a person who collaborated with her and talked to her and just like watching that um because it does like when the higher you, up you go the more they cut all the kind of like creative instincts because they are a machine and it is about selling it's about money and it, you, you can't be mad at that because that's just the way it is. Like, you know, like you go see a Broadway play and it's like, everything's one Oh one. It's not like deep thoughts. And even mm -hmm. the deep thoughts for people, it's people who've never been exposed to it. So they're getting the one, the like entry level of any of that, you know, the entry level of any sort of like discourse that's outside of the very heteronormative white kind of like cis lifestyle mm -hmm. and even even but even broadway like back in the 50s and 60s they were still like i mean they were still like you know who's afraid of virginia wolf was kind of like having like you know upper white class drunks talk about 
of like the darkness of it. Like that was very kind of controversial. Way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, kind of like, we're really actually opening up. We're like literally opening the like teapot of like how like hot and fucked up it is inside. <laughs> it feels like we've just like stalled there though. Like, sure. Nothing gets past that. I wonder, I mean, I don't remember what was, it's really interesting because I don't really know of what I can recall in the 70s that was on Broadway because I do feel like the 70s in general was kind of like, a, it's kind of what's going to probably happen in the next 10 years in New York, which is going to be like, a <laughs> you know, like no one can really afford to go. Because actually, the, I think the 70s is, or maybe it was, because that was when they, they were so desperate to get the economy started again. That's when they were starting to get like $10 seats, $20 seats. So that a lot of people that I knew born and raised in New York were always like, you can go to the Broadway. Like that was actually like part, you can go to a Yankees game, you can go to fucking Broadway. And those were things like as a New Yorker that were like kind of this really beautiful access you have. And then they, because of like, you know, Reaganomics and everything, like in this kind of like, you know, all the trickle down real economy that happens when you start like fucking over everyone um <laughs> or just you implement things that are only focused on making money instead of like you make money and then you have to like do something for the community and you know like i think that is like if you make a ton of money off a certain community you have to put i just think you should put something back I'm just trying to think of this way now going back into like residencies that I might have. So I'm like, if I go to a, like, you know, Mount Trumper arts and do a residency there, I want to like go into a part of the community. They may not even want me there, but I was still one of us be like, if I'm going to be up in this area, I want to invest back into this area, whether you like me or not, because then I actually want to get an exchange and a communication going on between artists, like small town kids, like, I don't know. Like yeah. when I was in Columbus, I saw Diamond Gallas at Wexner Center, and then I saw like Holly Hughes, and I saw like uh, Sandra Bernhard, and then and I, then I saw like Tribe Eight play, and then I you know or you know Indigo Girls, not gonna lie. <laughs> you know? Um, oh, but it was like those for me was like oh my god, like there's all these other people that are. It was just like, that was my internet, like coming in and being like, oh my God, or zines actually were really my internet. Mm -hmm. um, and having an, a campus, OSU campus was helpful because then it's like, you're going to see bands are always going to come through there and then you're going to have access to like queer stuff at the bookstore because it's a huge school. So so you grew up in Ohio, like yeah. both of us, mm -hmm. and you were adopted like me. Yeah. Can you talk about your experience there with your shows and did theater oh you talk about your experience there in your shows mm -hmm. did theater help you get through that time in your life i guess so i mean i i never like i <laughs> i was i got an in-school suspension for getting drunk in for, when i was 14 and my teacher really cared about me because i was supposed to get expelled and i think they were just like no this kid's fucked up and we kind of have some family shit going on and um uh, Mrs. Pinson, she really pushed me to get to do theater. And I loved rehearsing, but then we came, I remember the time of the performance, I was so terrified that I like almost barfed. And I was like, I don't want to go on stage. Like I was actually really into the rehearsal process and hanging out with my friends mm -hmm. and like making everyone laugh in the rehearsals. But then like the idea of performing in front of an audience, I was like, this is awful. <laughs> I think it was like, like for me, it was play. Like it was really fun to be playful, 
And I also didn't want to be home. So, but I remember she had my, this teacher had to drag me from under the, the stall, the toilet. <laughs> I was using the ladies restroom at the time. And um, she had to pull me out. And then, and this is the real truth, it's like, so, and I'm so nervous and I'm like shaking and I do this because I was doing Father of the Bride and I played this like uppity, like, uh, secretary that's really upset that there's too many people coming to this <laughs> wedding, that's about all I remember. And so I had this big monologue and really upset and I run out and then as I'm running out, the whole audience starts clapping and I remember being like, okay, <laughs> I'm into this. <laughs> I got a Leo moon. So I was like, so yeah, I mean, and then, and then I, um, and then my high school was really pushing me to do theater, but I was just like, I kind of wanted to be a writer. I was really into books. Like I was reading, I, you know, like for me having sexual abuse history, I remember reading, I know why the cage bird sings by Maya Angelou and it blew me away. And I remember when I was 13 years old, I read black boy by Richard Wright. And I had never read anything that talked about rage and pain. And it was not even something that I had any sort of like, at 13, it was like, I had no idea what it's like to be a young boy coming up from slavery. But his pain and anger was this way that I remember reading and, and thinking this is like, it was like having um, a release or like a, yeah, yeah. Like I hadn't read anything. Like I wasn't into books. I wasn't a very big reader. I kind of lived dyslexia. So, but to read these books, of, to me, I was like, I want to be a writer. Mm. So the idea of theater was really weird, but I wasn't a good writer in terms of, I, I, I didn't, you know, like my voice was so like all over the map. It was like trying to be good. So it wasn't, you know, <laughs> like it wasn't really, my voice was very like flowery and using words that I didn't quite have in my body yet. And, you know, it was like kind of embarrassing, like, you know depression is the black swan or something awful you know, like that. <laughs> um, and, and then I, I had this really great uh, college uh, counselor, uh, Latanya Evans, who really pushed me to audition for the school. And I did, and I got a little scholarship. And that's literally what kind of pushed me to go. And the school is uh, Otterbein College. And it was good. I met some of my best friends there. But it really wasn't a school for me as an artist because they, again, like my, my – um, Who's your advice? advisor said, like, oh, you're lesbian because no one asked you to prom? And this is, like, 1991. Oh, oh so I remember wow. being like, you know what? You know, I don't think I need to go to college. Because yeah. I just was, like, I was working two jobs plus going to, like, a conservatory. I was just, like, sucks. I don't – it's not – you know, looking back, I mean, it always it, – yes, it sucked and totally it was weird. But it was also like, I mean, New York was really tough too. Like it was, it wasn't like you weren't, I was walking down the street with the same kind of fucking dyke, you know, like that kind of shit. It was the same thing. But the only thing in Ohio is they really will kick your ass because there's not much else to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that I think I became tougher from coming from Ohio than being in New York. Because I remember being in Red Hook in like 96 and some like young Puerto Rican kid said something to me. I was like, what'd you fucking say? Did you call me fucking dyke? And I kind of came out and they were, you could tell they were like, oh shit, you know, white girls usually don't respond like this. <laughs> <laughs> One kid was like, we're kidding, we're kidding. Like, it was like all of a sudden, he, like there's a gang of boys, but I turn around by myself like, what'd you say? You know, with my long, really pretty hair. You know, like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, theater, 
theater didn't make much sense to me unless I was working on stuff that, like, I remember doing like a uh, like John A stuff or I'd read or Brecht. It was just like, whoa, these guys were writing during this time. What were you know? It was like what they were writing time. What they were responding to. I had a French teacher that was an existentialist who would teach Jews how to speak. Uh, with no like Yiddish in their accent, like so that and so then so that they would pass as non-Jewish, like wow. so I had this kind of like whoa that kind of art that was being done at that time and was being done like secretively and then performing and it's like I was like that's radical, you know that's the kind of stuff I want to get involved in, but that was not like you come to New York and. That was not mainstream. And I didn't know a lot of queer people. I knew a lot more like heterosexual people that had very good intentions. Um, Mm -hmm. And they really tried, but they're like, you know, like my female friends were always like, yeah, let's put Becca in that part. And then usually it was the guys who were like, uh, really? Because it just, you know, I think it was just hard. Like men used to say stuff to me like, you're pretty. You don't have to be gay. I, I, and my favorite thing would be we would be at a bar and I was like, let's look at the mirror. And he's like, yeah. And I go, who do you want to fuck? Me or you? And he goes, you. And I go, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd be like, oh. And I was like, but seriously. But seriously. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think it was always very hard. I, I mean, I didn't feel like I could be queer. Like I kept my long hair until I was 30 because I just didn't know, like, and when I cut my hair, it's kind of when I was like, I'm not gonna, I don't like, I'm not doing this anymore. And as soon as I cut my hair is when I started performing in the circus, Jennifer Miller's Circus and Muck. And, and it was actually nothing in theater I was doing like it was there was no Broadway off Broadway or even off off Broadway that would have taken would would have taken a risk of anything that I was. None of that was done until people like Young Jean Lee, Aaron Markey, you know, uh, Brooke O'Hara, Sharon Hayes, um, you know, Tina Satter, those uh, Jess Barbagallos, Sylvan Oswalds. Those were the people that were putting me in stuff. And it was when those people were putting me stuff and the stuff we were doing was getting, you know, noticed and variety. And then, then it was like, oh, who's, oh, Becca. Oh, you know, then it became like, oh, I want to put a trans person or a non or this, because we didn't even use those language in 2010, you know, like I want to put that person in my piece because they're really good. And I was just like, you know, I sent a letter out to the team in 2008. No one wanted to work (laughs) with me then. I mean, I, I would call young Jean, queer in a way because they kind of don't care what the norm is and i think because they've never they didn't go into get into theater by the norm so they weren't going to participate in the norm but everyone else in that list is queer um and those and they were all mostly like cola scola really helped uh, like stood up like put me in stuff and michael Cyril Crichton, uh rather another person but other than that like those are the only like um cis men do you know how many times I heard, you're so talented. I just don't know what I could do with you. 
like I heard that to the point where like all the way up into my like mid to late thirties, like when young trans people are, I hear them say like, there's not a lot of roles for us. I was, and I, and I have to catch myself cause I can just be like, Hey, on my day, there were no roles. You made them up, you know? And that's kind of where it goes back to like what my show was. My show was basically like, don't know what to do with me. I do because I've been in this meat carcass for my entire life and I haven't walked down the street being like, how do I, how do I function? Like the way sometimes <laughs> that casting people or people are holding like, I don't want to say gatekeepers because I don't believe in that, but people are kind of like, hmm, I'm trying to imagine you in that part. And you're like, you, you don't have to, it's like your lack of imagination has nothing to do with how I participate in the world my experience of the world is that I get to like actually make it up. Like I get to actually break past any of those like limitations. Right. And that's, and that's like, if I was to say anything to anyone, it's just like, don't like, if you, especially if you're younger, like just go in, dive in, get messy. Don't treat people like shit. Your friends are going to have to work for free you know, listen to their, like, don't be like a type A fucking douchebag, but, you know, <laughs> find the people that you feel excited to be creating with and make stuff. There's, you know, Dixon Place, you can always use their, um, their lounge for free if it's available. Um, and that is a great, that's where I workshop stuff. I would, that's what I did for they themselves and Schmerm. Bushwick star is really good with working in communities. Like they, 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 they really make sure that they have like a, and there's things you can get involved in, in terms of like, uh, getting on like a smaller list of like their playwright stuff. And they have like labs and things like that. So does Soho rep. They have the writer's lab. And then when you get to know those people, like that's actually how you start to do stuff, you know? And and it's okay. Like there is no finish line. Like I have to tell people, I'm like, would you have stuck in this business at 27? If you were told you won't get anywhere until you're 42, because that's what happened to me. Wow. And so if, if, and I say that to people, I was like, what if someone came here and told you right to your face, like, you're not going to get where you're going to stop being broke until you're 42. And then that's when everyone's going to start like wanting you to work on their projects would you, would you still want to do this? And I don't know if you would have told me that 27. I mean, I think I felt that at 27. Like I was just like, this is like, I feel like a failure. Like I, and my, my family was always just like, you know, what are you doing? Like they just, I think they just thought that I was just like walking around the street, just like drinking a bottle of wine. Like, I don't care. You know? <laughs> and I was like never hustling harder. Like right. I was working, mm. you know, and I, I mean, I was still partying cause I was just like, I'm so frustrated and upset, sure. but it's like it, theater, the, the systems of theater of like when you, cause I just got on my first off Broadway show in 2019 that was the first time i was ever off broadway in 2019 wow. and when i got there and i had to do eight shows a week for the same amount of pay of doing like my downtown theater for four or five shows a week i was like i'm going back <laughs> you're like this is not all yeah. cracked out to me <laughs> yeah i was like i can make the same and then i mean luckily i'm now at a, a position where I get grant money and I can do like some TV stuff and, and I have a manager now and we're working on that stuff so I, I can balance. But I even have to like, even if 
I'll be 47 in August. And even that, I always feel like I have to be like, I, I worked really hard to get here, you know, like, because there's still this like success guilt and I'm not even successful, but to, to someone, I mean, I'm not, not successful, but like, I have not, you know, for someone who's been doing something for 27 years, I don't have a lot to show for it except experience, mm-hmm. you know? And like, oh, Becca Blackwell. But even like, you know, I have a new roommate who's 30 and she's never heard of me and she's in the business. <laughs> she's, I was like, yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. She was like, oh, really? What have you done? And I was like, like well, here we go. <laughs> You've never heard of this stuff. <laughs> so speaking of the show from 2019, uh, what was your reaction to reading the script for Hurricane Diane and, can you tell us about the process for that, bringing that character to life? Oh, yeah. I mean, Madeline George is amazing. And she's a good friend. And when she was so worried about asking me to play a lesbian, a dyke, really, and she was so like, is this okay? Am I bad? She's like, when I first started writing this, you were the first person I had in mind because I didn't really know anyone else. So I just started writing it the way I imagined you saying stuff. So getting in the room and having that person say that to me, I was like, what the fuck? this is crazy. Like I felt honored and embarrassed and like, and then, you know, and she would just like, if I would do something in the rehearsal, she, like next day, she'd have a little draft, like writing little things I said and pushing it in. And, you know, Madeline's just so like a, a really good person. Like, you know, Madeline teaches like playwriting to women in prison. You know, Madeline's actually like, like that. Madeline walks the walk person. Um, but she would never tell anyone that. Uh, she's just a really great human being. Um, and so I was really like, I'll be honored to play a dyke. You kidding me? I go, it's probably the last time I'll ever get this chance. You know, this little facial hair is coming in, you know? <laughs> um, uh, so I was really like, yeah, I want to do it. And I remember the first time I was really, I had, I still had my breasts when we did it in Jersey, but it was right when Trump was being inaugurated. And none of us cared. Like, it was really weird. We were all, like, doing the show kind of like. What's <laughs> <laughs> real anymore. Right. I think. And, and I remember Madeline and Lee Silverman, the director, mm-hmm. were just, like, you know, like, in a state of, like, they're so, like, activists as well. Right. Like, I think I would have liked Madeline to feel the permission to be more radical with it. But I think Madeline was really, really, really trying to straddle having a bull dyke be the lead and have a family funny. Mm-hmm. She was really, really, really working to do that. Like to like have this like, you know, character that people just couldn't wrap their heads around. And that's how people feel about me in general. So I get up there and people will be like, that's a, like, you know, that for like, that's a man. Nope. <laughs> usually people can tell I'm not a man because I can hold eye contact um, that's usually wow. <laughs> yeah that scary? Well, that's probably wow. true <laughs> yeah I also like I only I said I would say it if you brought it up and I just have to say I'm such an Aaron Markey fan queer like that's how oh, yeah. that's how I first saw you I saw a ride on the Irish cream and oh, yeah. that was I mean, so great that was 
That was another thing. I mean, Aaron was like writing about a relationship that no one had ever really seen on stage. And that was even, you know, Charles Isherwood didn't know how to wrap his head around it either. Absolutely not. Deferred to me as an it, you know. Um, <laughs> I know. You know, I mean, Aaron, uh, even though we're not like, you know, romantically linked anymore, they were a huge, huge, huge influence in my artistic career, giving, helping me feel confident with my voice in this way, you know? And I think that was, you know, where a lot of our deep love like lied in the last like five years of our relationship. Cause I think we kind of were like, you know, I think, th I think they're incredible artists. They're mm -hmm. so smart. They're so funny. Like that was something that even if we were fighting, they could always say shit to me that I would just be like, cool. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, but they were, you know, that was such a like huge, like it was just so we didn't, cause I remember seeing like after the shows, it's always you, this is what you know, this is with the Shmurm as well. Like you don't realize that, that there's certain, like like I'm there as a vessel to say something for some person to hear themselves represented or felt or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I had to always be reminded of that because sometimes I hated doing my solo show because it was just hard to talk about being molested. You're just like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to do this again. But my, I remember my director being like, it's not about you. The show isn't about you anymore. The show is about the person who needs to hear this. And, mm -hmm. and that was always like what I felt after Aaron's show. Cause it was, tr it was, it was hard, you know, like it was hard having Aaron be the kind of auteur of that and then our own dynamics in a relationship. And we really it was difficult. We fought a lot of stuff. Um, and so there were, those were trying parts, but then like the reward with not only, you know, being a participant on something really beautiful and like, well made with so much love was that hearing people afterwards saying like, I, I've never seen this relationship on stage. Like I've never seen a queer relationship, like a real queer, not like right. written <laughs> by a, a person who was queer once and then decided <laughs> to write about it or written by a real queer person directed by another queer person who insisted on casting queer people in it, you know, mm -hmm. like that, you know, and that's the, again, and that is the, to the, to the credit of what theater is. Aaron did a Kickstarter for that show. Abrams gave Aaron the space. Aaron got a great director. Aaron's collaborator, Emily Bate, you know, incredible, you know, musician. And, and all of that was, you know, from Aaron's, you know, heartbeat and mind. All of us working really hard to make that. So, I mean, that is, that, that, that got maybe like a, a little grant for $4,000 or something and had a, a, a residency at Bax. Uh, Brooklyn Art Exchange, but other than that, that wasn't that wasn't any theater institution doing anything. Right. That mm -hmm. was that was like Erin and the collaborators that she was working on. All of us making something together, and just out of the sheer belief in the piece, you know. And that's kind of what I mean. That that's to what I say is to any young artist: like, do not wait for anything. You know, because no one will come for you. Yeah, it was just seeing, especially like butch people come up to me afterwards and being like, thank you. know, It's so nice to see someone who has some similar body to mine. And you don't realize, like even the high maintenance episode I did, that was the first time that there was ever a butch person on, on a show that was being unapologetically sexual. Hmm. 
And I didn't realize that either. And that was something that people were like, it was kind of revolutionary. Like you don't ever see that, you know, like usually butch characters are like desexualized. Can I ask? Sure. Uh, you said something earlier that you don't believe in gatekeepers. Mm. Can you uh, explain that a little more? It's kind of my theory of like, what is success? Like, do I give them the power of being the gatekeeper? Because I can just go around and go in the back door. Mm. It might take longer and I might not get like access to the money, but is that what I want? Like, it's more like I'm realizing that those people that I thought that's what success is getting to that is where I'm going to go. And then I, and then this is how I felt when I was doing off Broadway, I get to those places and then I'm like, mm-hmm. they're the gatekeepers because they're saying this is success. They're the gatekeepers. Cause like th- this is how you get an agent. And I'm like, well, I never had an agent. I just had a, I got a manager in January of 2019 and my manager didn't get me the high maintenance stuff. My manager did get me the Rami episode and I mean, he's, my my manager is awesome, Anthony Ippolito. He's incredible. He's young. I think he's just in his like very early thirties. He doesn't have an issue with my gender. He doesn't like. He's he's basically like, what do you want? You know, what do you want to do? And I was like, you know what I do? I want to make a ton of money so I can make all the art I want and then be able to pay it back into the community because I know how to live off of thirty thousand dollars a year. And I'd like to make more than that, make art that I love, be able to pay people I care about. And I was like, that's really what I want to do. I want to be able to retire, do my Qigong, do some medical Qigong so I can heal people. And then do shows every once in a while by young people I think are really smart and and make all my, you know, every once in a while I get a bee in my bonnet and make some art. But, you know, like that, and he, and he was like, okay. He's like, would you also be willing to do some of this other stuff that's kind of like garbage that I might have to have you do? And I was like, yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah, But he's, yeah, I don't know. And that's, for me, that was something the gate, I mean, I do think there's, I do think there's people we have to come up against, but I just think like, don't give them that power. Mm -hmm. When it comes down to it, all the people who are gatekeeping are gatekeeping institutions that aren't being creative. The gatekeeper is me. Like, I'm the one who gives them that power. Because everything is based on your root belief. So if I, you know, how even I see the color green is what frequency of green I can even tap into. So if I'm only seeing people in my way of my success, then that's what I'm going to see. If I just say those people don't even exist, like in terms of like, there are no gatekeepers because I can actually be as creative as I want. I can find the people that inspire me to work with me, friends to make work. And, you know, I can have like a shitty job that you can actually find good shitty jobs because I've done them and you can figure out how to make the work. Like it wasn't something that I was just like, how am I going to do this? It really came down to like that. My guts were making me do this. Like I didn't have a choice. Like I tried to stop doing art a lot because I was frustrated. I was angry at being broke. So I'm not saying that it's like you walk around and you're like, once I realized there's no gatekeepers and I was like, <laughs> I, thought, I have all the power in the world. I mean, if you do that, you're actually a beautiful walking miracle. And I think that is incredible. And I want more people like that in the world that can really, you know, pull a full like Taoist like bunk. like <laughs> I don't believe in that stuff anymore and you know <laughs> and they're like you don't see that we're all connected you know <laughs> and those are you know beautiful walking miracles and I would love to 
kiss the bottom of their feet. But, <laughs> but, I, but I'm just saying, like, you don't know what you're capable of until you look back and go, oh, my God, I came from that. And, and I have to always, you know, people are just finding out who I am maybe in a little bit. And I have this huge thing of work, but I didn't really have a lot of confidence, I don't think, until I turned 40 and I got the Doris Duke Impact Artist Award. And it was through a grant that gave me this, like, all this hard work. Because there was also, like, I, I basically was telling, I told of someone, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't do this. I'm so tired. I'm, I don't see this ever ending. I just feel like I'm going to be working for $500 a week for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting older and I can't, you know. And then and it was just that, like, for me, it was just a lot of shifting of how I, what was important to me and what I was, like, I started saying no to projects that, because I was, I was always in the state of scarcity. Like, I'll say yes, I'll say yes. Anyone who wants to work with me, I'll say yes, because I was just like, I'll take anything. And then I started being like a little more like, no, I can only do this. And then I started prioritizing things that were really important for me for my own health. And then like all of a sudden these kind of huge shifts came in and then I was realizing, and then I was looking back and going, there were no gatekeepers. There were only like, cause there were so many shut doors in my face that I became, that the people I found through that were actually the people I was making art with. If I had had all these doors open to me, I don't think I would be as creative and as interesting as I am. Does that make sense? And that's so weird to say, but it's true. The moment I had my, my Qigong grandmaster, when he said, I had a really hard time forgiving some like past abuses in my life. And then I remember him saying to me once, he said, think of the contract that you and that person wrote so that you could have this experience in your life. And when I really thought of it on that level of like, that we are in one place whether or not on this earth we are all kind of together as one and we're literally here on this earth to try and overcome some of these obstacles as a collective and if i started thinking that way in terms of like i don't want to alienate myself from anyone so if there's one if like there's one injustice in the world that means there's it's somewhere in me so anything i'm seeing in the world somewhere reflects inside of me and I can't get any further or any more elevated than the lowest of my group. And so I, I started thinking like that and it, it changed how I respond. I mean, I'm not, again, this isn't the same, like I'm going to get off the phone here and probably be like, I feel fat, you know, like it's just like, it's not like I'm walking around in a state of being like, but I, but the, the, even entertain these kind of thoughts of just like shifting this kind of narrative in my head that it isn't like things aren't working for me instead of just like, how can I truly be myself and authentic to me? And then, those, if those are the things that really are my purpose and what I'm really knowing that I'm supposed to do, they, they come out of me. Like I don't have a choice. I'm really struck by that. Like you can't do any better than like the lowest person in your community. Like just thinking about how in like recent light, just looking at like the wages at some of these theaters and like, you know, what like visiting artists are getting compensated versus like what's at the top. And, Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I think maybe a lot of us in the theater community could use some Qigong understanding right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was this, I can't remember what institution it was, but somehow they figured out that they're, and they, they did it so that every single person who worked there, including like the security guards all the way up to the CEOs, were all in these like kind of like calls. Because they were trying to be like, how do we keep everyone on payroll and how do we work with these new, and they figured out that this one of the security guards was really good at like, making calls like he was totally like i'm so good at this i love this shit and i feel like these like what i'm hoping out of this is is seeing people differently shifting into different dynamics and understanding that the person who cleans the fucking toilet is actually doing you a bigger service than the person who's writing your policy the the demands from the we see you at american theater it included uh for compensation that like the top paid person is no more than 10 times the lowest mm-hmm. paid person and right now those numbers are ridiculous so I, i'm yeah. very curious how that's going because it's just when they say white theater it's just like I, I, cause I'm white. I can't, but I was kind of like, that's not the theater I know. Like, but that again, those are all like off Broadway, Broadway people. Mm-hmm. Those are people that actors are treated like, um, like tin cans, you know, mm-hmm. like that is how actors are treated. I was shocked because I was just like, I'm not an actor. I'm an artist who happens to be acting in this play. Mm-hmm. And then I realized like, Oh, they're used to like actors are cattle. And they're just like, and if the actor's like, hey, and they're like, I got someone younger and we'll do it for the same amount of money without bitching, you know? And then I, and then I was like, oh, that's how they treat people in this successful position. This isn't something I want to be a part of. I'm not, it's not, I didn't, I didn't have, it's not like New York Theater Workshop. They're great. Like every, people at New York Theater Workshop are really beautiful people, but they are running an organization and they're trying to stay afloat and it's really fucking hard. Like having a theater is really fucking hard. Like I don't, I really am curious how a lot of like spaces are going to hold on. I know. I, I don't understand the direction forward, but I'm glad that it's I don't, I don't, causing everyone to kind of think about things more. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's just, there's going to, you know, I think what sucks and unfortunate thing is it it'll fall on kind of the way education fell on the teachers, you know, like you have to figure this out because it wasn't the department of education that did shit. It was all the fucking teachers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just how it's going to fall in all those systems. Like it's going to be the, the the makers themselves, the artists, or the collective group that's just like, let's figure this out, let's do this show, and let's test this out. And then bigger spaces are going to be like, oh, that's actually a good idea. And we have bigger resources, and we can do this better. And we'll take this idea. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I mean, that is kind of like it's kind of how it works. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So on every episode, we um, ask our guests to share what their queer culture indulgence is. So what are you reading, watching, listening to from queer culture that you would recommend? Oh, I'm so terrible at this because all I'm really reading about is is Taoism and Qigong and that. As you can see, like my acupuncture stuff. I've just started getting into all this right <laughs> it's now. It's a good setup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... I'm sure they were queer. They just didn't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> or are there um, ways that listeners can watch things that you've been in during the pandemic? <laughs> I mean, you could always watch the, I mean, high maintenance is great in terms of any queer 
because it's it was mostly written by queers and they're really good at actually talking about kind of new york city and its diversity like my friends who are even born and raised here come from like the typical new yorker like sesame street family where like like if you put the whole picture together that like they look like they're from 10 different families and they're all one family. This is what I love about New York. Um, they were like, my friend was like from one of those families. Like I finally, finally see, I feel like I finally watching a TV show that I see New Yorkers in. Like mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. this beautiful, diverse kind of window into all different kinds of lives. Um, so that's really good. I mean, I'm. Well, we do a queer creating the canon section too. And like, oh, yeah. I, I want to recommend the Schmerterian collection. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to make more of those. Uh, oh, please do. Mm-hmm. Can you explain really quickly what that is? Um, it is basically taking uh, any of the Criterion collection or kind of like really like huge, big movies that like were effective and then inserting myself and my friend, Jess Barbagallo, who is, uh, also a redheaded schmerm uh, <laughs> and any of my other. So like, I, I also like my friend TL Thompson, who's an incredible uh, uh, African-American actor. Uh, there's a series we want to do with them. Like, but I, it would be like all the bad, like Mel Gibson, Danny Glover movies <laughs> having us do those. That's on the docket for this summer, but they are basically um, like we do, you know, uh, uh, what is, oh, we did Shmermy Instinct, where Jess just asked me if I'm gay or straight, and I'm just in a white t-shirt with no underwear on in my kitchen. <laughs> so it's like we take kind of these, like, seminal scenes in film, and then we just kind of, like, queer them. And we had a whole Thelma and Louise one as well, like Shmermy, um, Shmermy and Friends or something, and it was him and I deciding to increase our testosterone and then we just drive off of the, the pier. <laughs> we were just so amped up. <laughs> like, I'm taking my dose to the next level. <laughs> and we we're trying to get our necks really big. Um, so it's a lot of those, yeah, I mean, Shmerm Kara named Desire. Because I think it came from like, I was like, I, I remember Aaron was in a um, Tennessee Williams piece, Green Eyes. And I I remember being really sad that I would never be considered to play the male part opposite them. Like, you know, just that thing of like, I'm invisible. Like you could never see me as a masculine lead, you know, like, cause you don't think I'm hot. Cause I, you know, I'm not a man. So if I'm not a man, like gay men are just like, they're, you know, sorry. Okay. Horsey Marie. He's, oh. he's making pigeon sounds, and I didn't know. Oh, so cute! <laughs> We're not used to being in headphones together. Oh, yeah, he, he just came out of his uh, post dinner nap. Like, oh. all right, Aww. well, time to party. Um, <laughs> so cute. <laughs> so, Becca, you recommended a lot of potential <laughs> gift suggestions. We can definitely shout them all out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love. Callum Ward because that's where I get that's where I was able to get testosterone for the you know time and I and even when I was a queer in the 90s if I had any sort of ailment you could just walk in there I don't think you can do that anymore because I think they're a little overloaded but Sylvia Rivera's food project they're really awesome they they make sure that like queer and trans youth get 
uh, food. They have a pantry. And then their law project, Silver Rivera's law project, is also great. But in terms of like right now, there's, um, I think I sent you a GoFundMe for the uh, sex works of color, like, or right now that I don't, I know aren't getting a lot of traffic. Cal and Lord, right when the, because that's where I get my, I was supposed to have, I was supposed to have a, um, a paps. <laughs> this, is, this is me making a gesture of the, of the badge of femme thing I had to insert in my vagine, which I was like, that's a beautiful thing to give to trans people. Like, here's a badge of femme. Put it in your vagina. <laughs> just like, <laughs> oh boy! Um, but I obviously it got canceled. But I was talking to my doctor, and she was. They were. In, they were literally turning Callum Lord into a homeless shelter for teens with COVID because there was nowhere oh, for wow. them to go. Yeah. So Callum Lord, like literally in that the huge throes of the first part of the pandemic, fully changed their entire space into like a place for like homeless creeps. That's awesome. It's fucking great. Oh yeah, I know. They like never stop. They're just like, what other tragedy? Add it in. We need them. <laughs> I know. They're just a, everyone there, whether no matter what their identity is, they're all like lesbians at heart. They're like, we got it. We got we got it. We got it. We're gonna take care of it. <laughs> uh Becca, real quickly, how can people find you online? Uh BeccaBlackwell.com. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for Thank being you so here much, with us. Holly, Megan, everyone there out in the ether when you hear this. I really care about you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us and share us with your friends. We'd love to hear from you if you have any queer culture recommendations or other ideas about how to queer the canon, you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 845-445-9251 or email us at thesisonjoan at gmail.com. And you can follow us on social. We're on Instagram and Twitter at thesisonjoan. Until next time, keep it queer. Not that it'd be that hard for y'all to do. a nice way to spend a Monday night instead of watching the Obies. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> we'll edit that out. <laughs> hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.